Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to a, another, no doubt, exciting episode of Redemption Meditations. I guess we'll see. But uh, we Fast were... Pace. Yes, yes. Breakneck speed. Here we go. That's right. That's right. So after we finished last week's episode, we were talking about Bible translations and what we use and study tools and things. We thought it might be good to maybe back up a little bit and just talk about the Bible in general, what we believe about the Bible and and get into that a little bit. We thought that might be a fun conversation to have and helpful for people. So when uh, we consider the the Bible, it's interesting. I did a little bit of research getting ready for this. And if you look up the the most sold book in history on almost all the lists, for some reason, you can't find the Bible, which is curious when you uh, do some more research and you find out of, about some of the uh, most sold books. For example, the, the Book of Mormon, 200 million copies. The Quran, 800 million copies. The Bible, five to seven billion copies. Wow. But it doesn't make the top 10 hundred any of the lists for, you know, most bestsellers for some <laughs> reason, which I thought was just curious. You you do with that information what you please. But I, I think... Uh, it would be fun to get into what's so special about the Bible. The Bible, 66 books, 40 authors. It was written over 1,500 years. Not a lot of books are like that, but we're going to dig, we're going to go even further on that. So, we, the three of us, obviously believe that the Bible is unique. It is unlike any other Bible, it, it stands alone. There's the Bible and then everything else. And so I think that would be a good place to start for either one of you. Why is this book different from the Book of Mormon or the Quran or the Lord of the Rings or whatever it may be? Fill in any other book. Why is the Bible different? What do you think? Because it contains the words of life. Um, the, the, the Bible is different because it is, and, and we call it this, right? It is God's word. Um, it is, uh, so Paul uses the language in 2 Timothy of it being God-breathed, so it is, it is like the breath of God given to us. Um, it, it also says, so it's 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, uh, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Um, so the Bible is is uh, profitable for us in ways, and we believe, like theologically speaking, because it has the words of life, um, because it or it is the word of life, right? Because it is um, God breathed. We believe that it is that it contains um, uh, that it's profitable, but not profitable in a way that like a like a um, a Haynes engine repair manual is profitable, <laughs> right? Or a, a, a you know um, knitting for dummies or something like that. Like yeah, it's a mathematics profitable. textbook. Yeah, or, yeah. Any 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 other kind of book, it's profitable in a way that leads us to salvation. So it is um, the the word of God, meaning that it is it is the whole story of of God and man. Um, uh, and God's relationship with man all through from the beginning, literally all the way through into what has yet to happen, the end and into eternity. It is God's um, story. It is God's um, uh, the, the, the 1689 confession starts right off. Um, it's actually the first point, but the second sentence says the light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord is pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church. And we believe that is through God's word. I'll kick it over to Lena. What, what do you think, Lee? Is the Bible any different from anybody, any other book? 
the Bible's different in a lot of ways. To slightly piggyback on what Dana has just said, too, I want to go to the actually the first sentence of the first uh, paragraph of of the the chapter in the Confession on the Holy Scriptures, saying the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And then going on to talk about what's revealed by the light of nature. Um, and so that's the only, the Bible is the only book that we can mm -hmm. say that about. And that word infallible carries a lot of weight, um, but also sufficient and certain as well. There are elements there that I think we will we'll want to break down in a little bit. But this is a unique book that is the only book that we can say these kinds of things about and, and has these um, characteristics of it. In addition to that, um, you had already mentioned the fact that the book was written over 1500 years. Um, we don't have any other books in the Western or Eastern canon that can stand up to something like that. Um, because of the fact that not only is it compiled over that amount of time, but when you read it, there's um, it's cohesive uh, throughout the whole thing and is somehow, you know, and obviously we would say because it's it has one main author, uh, God, um, it's telling one consistent story through the pen of many authors, maybe even say pencil, um, <laughs> over the course of that that amount of time. Uh, and again, that's something that we don't have any any um, other kind of book. Uh, we have more manuscript evidence for the Bible than for most of the ancient classics that are considerably younger texts. Um, we have, I can't even, I think it's four times the manuscripts for the Bible than even um, Homer's Odyssey, for example. Nobody and has any lot, doubt that, go ahead. And, and a lot closer to when they were actually written. Right. Yeah. Um, you you right. know, we have, we have portions of, I think it's of John's gospel that are within the first century. So yeah. we don't, there's no, there's no handwritten, you know, like autographs of, um, just like there isn't a Homer's Odyssey, right? We don't have any handwritten um, yeah. parts of the Bible still, but we have closer to when they are written scribal copies. And I, I think it's John, I think there's a portion mm -hmm. of John's gospel that they found that's within the first century, which is yep. possibly even, I'm, I'm going by memory here, but possibly even um, potentially within his lifetime. Possibly. Pretty close to it. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah, depending on how well you trust the dating processes. Yeah, uh, that yeah. kind of thing. But I think that's pretty reasonable. Uh, I think it also it, that's a big aspect of the Bible anyway. The fact that God instructed in many passages of Scripture, write this down, not just simply say it. Don't just pass it down orally. Um, yeah. Write it down. It, it, that even began with the with the uh, the Ten Commandments on Sinai, where God wrote them <laughs> himself with his own. <laughs> uh, anthropomorphic finger. Uh, so um, that's been a key uh, part of textual history, both within um, within OG <laughs> Judaism, uh, the Old Testament faith, and going into uh, the Christian world then uh, as well. We've got to write it down. We're going to, you know, God's commanded us to write it down. We're going to make this a matter of record. Um, so I think the manuscript history aspect only continues to bolster that supernatural part that Dana so eloquently uh, exposited just now. Uh, that's some nice backup. And I also like the fact too, uh, this is a bit of a bugaboo for me, but uh, the confession so early talks about the, use, the usefulness of natural revelation. Um, there are aspects that we can know about God's, God's own nature in essence by studying his creation. Um, that begins us on our track, um, you know, of um, people who want to seek the truth, not necessarily talking about like secret sensitive in that way, but people want to know why we got here. What's the purpose of life? You can already begin that search just by studying nature uh, with a clear mind, too. Um, now, that's not going to save anybody, but it is going to prove there is a God. He is wise. He is orderly. He has ordained a certain purpose for this earth. What is that purpose? Well, let's unfold the gospel to you now and connect the these two books of God. And 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 then I was gonna say just um connected to the the whole idea of the manuscript and and um and whatnot in the 
in archaeological terms, um, you know, there's constant uh, study and findings, and, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were a major archaeological find, and um, they're still, even today, th those are like in the 50s, and even today, they're still researching and translating and kind of working through, there were so many of them, and they weren't all from scripture, but there was, you know, much of that. And one of the things that's really fascinating about it is how God has preserved his word. So they have found, you know, these ancient documents and basically, you know, very carefully unrolled them, scanned them, did whatever the technology is to, to look at these. And they say pretty much the same thing as what the Bible, like what we have, <laughs> you know, like yeah. from a thousand years ago, it hasn't been added. Like that's one of the, one of the, um, criticisms of the bible is oh you know people added to it and they did this and they did that and it, it just went around twitter again or x again last i don't know in the last couple of weeks where um you know this person this this false teacher says uh, homosexuality wasn't added until into the bible until 1840 something <laughs> and right and, and it's really great because there's a community notes under it where they they correct ah. what he said that says actually that word wasn't a word in English until that day. Yeah, <laughs> but the idea behind it was always there. It wasn't like yeah. they added it in the 1800s. You know, oh, yeah. this is a sin too. It would have been well known in the first century context what was meant by that Greek word. <laughs> right, right, and and so when you go back and you find they find documents, they find manuscripts that are you know older than what they had. They say the message is the same, and 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 that's where the um, like the little footnotes of while well, these old manuscripts don't have this verse or don't have this word, you know, and they'll put it in the footnotes. It it never changes the meaning. It's not like saying, mm -hmm. oh, you know, like they've tried to say um, that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married. Like that's one of those common like um, criticisms, and and they're looking like there are people who are looking for that evidence. And so that, oh, this this says that Jesus had a wife. No, no, it never says that anywhere. You know, like there's no there's no textual evidence that credible scholars actually take, um, you know, as as credible and and that changes the meaning of scripture, right? That whether it's something silly like that or this word was added and you know this wasn't a sin back then and it, it, there's none of that. It it all of it is any of the differences are minor and and don't bear weight on the mess the the big picture message of scripture of salvation of who god is of who jesus is the holy spirit none of that has ever changed even if the translations have kind of been more refined and more um i think more accurate as they as the scholarship has has developed yeah yeah i'm i'm, I'm glad you guys kind of headed toward the the issue of the ancient manuscripts because when we consider ancient writings the bible really does stand alone i mean there are thou literally thousands of ancient manuscripts for the bible and when we consider other ancient writings a lot of times they find one which was a copy <laughs> written 800 years after the original right. or two right, right. There, yeah. there's enough uh <laughs> Akkadian manuscripts found when people were there in like the 18th century, you right, know, and dug something right. up. There's enough quoting of the New Testament by people doing commentaries on the New Testament that you could re rewrite the whole thing from yeah. from those. And and this is like thousands, I think from from thousands of years alone, ago. You right. could do that. So it really is unique as an as an it is an ancient writing, but it's it, it's not like what we typically think of as an ancient writing where we found one copy from from something that was actually written 1500 yeah. years before that and that's yeah. all we have so i guess you know this is what it is and, and this so, is the more responsible way to talk about god preserving his written word over time there are some there are some folks who will use that kind of language but they'll use it only in defense of a certain english translation for example um, that is not what we're talking about. So God does preserve his word. You know, the same biblical text that we have 
uh, and we read every Sunday at church or in our devotions at home um, is the same as what was being read in in the catacombs uh, when when the Christians would have to meet underground, right? Um, yep. It's more widely uh, uh, available now. You know, you could buy a Bible anywhere uh, or online or whatever, but you know, the word is still the same, even though it's in English now versus Koine Greek and Biblical Hebrew, uh, or translated into the Old Testament, translated into Greek, it is the word of God. And where the Bible is carefully translated um, and care, and this is going back to what we talked about last episode, as biblical translations into other languages where care is is truly taken and pains are taken um, to responsibly translate um, the words from the origin language into the the other language, um, those are good translations. And there's no reason to enshrine one over against the other because you have um, a, a tradition or a, a theory that God prefers one translation over the other. You know, as long as it's a faithful translation and wild leaps aren't being taken, um, you can trust it. We may have our favorite translations, ones that we prefer for different reasons, uh, but that doesn't make that translation more of a Bible um, than another faithful translation. But it, it's also interesting to kind of throw the counterpoint in there. I was thinking about um, how uh, during like the Reformation and, and Martin Luther, um, the 95 Theses uh, begins, it, it's essentially all about repentance. And one of the things that Luther did, in fact, it's in, um, in Matthew chapter four, um, it, uh, so Matthew four seventeen. that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the Latin Vulgate that the Catholic church used, um, instead of using the word repent, it said the word do penance, mm -hmm. like do D O mm -hmm. penance. So mm -hmm. here's what you have to do in order to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. And that was the message that was being proclaimed. And Luther yeah translates it from the greek and was like wait that's not the word yeah repentance is a different concept and he gets that you know especially when he got into studying in romans mm -hmm. and it makes it so clear in, in the book of romans but he went from psalms which the psalms also uh make repentance very clear as opposed to do penance mm -hmm. um and, and so so here you have one word that's translated, mistranslated, and then used to, to sort of capture people in a system of works-based salvation. Mm -hmm. But God in his grace, um, you know, allows, so it's one guy, and I'm sure he's the one that made it famous, right? There were people before him and, and, and people who understood that, um, the difference between penance and repentance. Mm -hmm. um, but, but God in his grace used luther and the retranslation of the scriptures interestingly enough mm -hmm. to to um uh recapture the the whole concept of of being saved by faith alone right and, and yeah. i mean you can put all of the solas in that right so the the um on the authority of scripture alone but but that whole idea of that you you can mistranslate one word and then capture a bunch of people and it was more to it than that, but to kind of put it really simply, um, it, it, it almost is like, well, maybe we're getting into like some spiritual warfare type of, of discussions there, you know, uh, of, of the evil one trying to blind the mind of the foolish mm -hmm. uh, in, in order to, to deceive them. Um, anyway, I don't want to go too far down that road. I, I would gladly put Jerome's Vulgate in the same category as cultic translations like the new world translation for the jehovah's witnesses um and also i'd even go so far as to say um the relatively recent passion translation which is basically an attempt to read um, new apostolic reformation theology into the bible and actually implant it in the text um i think i think all three of those versions are on that same level uh, and are yeah. not faithful right because you've already explained how how even just the word repentance turning it into an active verb do penance uh is uh 
is a blatant mistranslation. Um, and whether that's a chalked up to ignorance on Jerome's part, um, which some people have alleged, regardless, not a faithful translation. Um, and if you were to read the, I think it's the New American Bible, which is the the contemporary English Roman Catholic Bible, that okay. is basically taking the Vulgate out of Latin and translating it into English. It's like the uh, Vatican II of Bibles. Um, again, it will have the same issue as the Vulgate will, uh, teaching works righteousness. So there's definitely translations to avoid. Yeah, the New World Translation, right, is the Jehovah's Witness, and, and they, they insert the, the article A mm -hmm. um, in John oh, 1, right? Uh, yeah, so, and, and uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That, that's not what it says. It's not there. That's a, that's a, that is a, a bad translation in order to prop up a, a false teaching and um, an error in order to prop up an error yeah. and, and, you know, make it good point. Yeah. Yeah. So people uh, choose to believe a lot of things, a lot of books and hold to a lot of different things. And I wanted to share a a quote here. This is by Bodhi Bauckham, and this is his answer to why do you choose to believe the Bible? And he says this, he says, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. And I think a, a little section in that quote is the idea that people who were eyewitnesses wrote some of this stuff and, and that were supernatural things during the lifetime of other people who witnessed the same thing. And, that, and that's important because if I... If I stood up and said, hey, world, last week at church, a purple unicorn ran around the, the sanctuary, <laughs> Dana and Lee would say, first of all, this is Steve's oh. last week on redemption meditation. <laughs> and they would say, no, -uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> and, and so when we talk about maybe, I don't know, the empty tomb, people uh, uh, witnessed it and wrote down this these things when there were other people alive who also witnessed it, or mm -hmm. if this didn't happen, could have said, well, that, that's not true. Yeah, that, that, we can, that's we so can go important. to the tomb right now. That, that's so important because that's what that Paul makes that very argument in first Corinthians 15. Yeah. So he gets, he gets to the end of his letter correcting. Here's all the things. I got a lot of problems with you people. And now <laughs> you're going to hear about it, right? That's essentially first Corinthians. And then he gets to chapter 15, and he spends the whole chapter on the resurrection. But he starts it off with, now I would remind you of what it, he calls it. He says, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was So he's appealing to the authority of scripture. Um, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, just like um, just like the Old Testament said he was going to be. Um, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he also appealed, appeared also to me. So the implication there is there's over 500 people that you can go talk to. Some of them have died by now. He, he admits that. But most of them are still alive. There's the apostles. Mm -hmm. You could talk to Peter. He'd be happy yeah. to, to tell you about it. James. James was not a believer at the time that Christ, it was his half, you know, his brother, right? His half brother. He was not a believer um, until after the, the ascension. And um, so James wasn't running around, you know, with this like false notion of this guy's the Messiah. He didn't believe it. And, and, but he will tell you now because now he believes, you know, go talk to these people. There's 500. He doesn't even name them. In fact, mm -hmm. we don't really know where those 500, like, we don't know when he appeared to those 500. We've got some guesses, but the point is there are people that you can go talk to. So the central claim of the new Testament 
the gospel, right? That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. The central claim of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, Paul appeals to the eyewitness testimony and even and also to me i saw this so i'm giving my testimony and you can go if you don't believe me go ask these other people and i think that's such an important um fact it, it, especially when we talk about the claims of jesus christ right there, there's other things that we could debate but and i'm not saying that one part of scripture is more important than another but the the claim of jesus christ has eyewitness multiple eyewitness um testimony that will verify well and jesus own ministry was marked by the fact that he wasn't testifying of himself you know he was constantly appealing to the fact that the father uh, had sent him that he was uh, he was carrying out the mission that the father sent him to carry out uh, he's always appealing to the father's authority even though as the eternal son of God, Jesus' authority is the same as the father's. But even in that moment, this is how it works on earth. You like you only appealing to yourself as the authority will not fly. So right. Jesus always had people around him. There were always eyewitnesses to everything he did in his earthly ministry. Um, even the fact appearing to uh, to Mary at the beginning of his of his resurrection from the very moment he steps out of the tomb yeah. he's being seen spoken to sharing a meal with somebody um yeah. and that same logic follows through the entire new testament um yeah. luke even appeals to it at the beginning of his gospel account you know he's he's made an account he's addressing theophilus so the the letter is going to a particular person uh he's going to receive this document we have that name because luke includes it um but the, he compiled his his gospel account by speaking to many eyewitnesses uh, and pulling an entire journalistic, if you want to use that word even, a journalistic approach to telling the story of, of Christ, um, which yeah. I think is uniquely Christian, to be honest yeah. with you. And, and, and you know what else is really fascinating? In Peter's second letter, um, in, in Second Peter uh, chapter, what's well, chapter one, he, um, so, so we, we read in the Gospels, the Transfiguration account. So, so Peter, Peter, James, and John go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see this miraculous event, and as part of that, they hear the Father say, this is my son, listen to him, right? So they, they see this thing, they see this miraculous event, they hear the voice from heaven. Now, they also have been there at his baptism where God essentially says the same thing, but they, they, they see this miraculous uh, thing, the glorified Christ, and he says, I love this. He says, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in, in a dark place. We have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. We, he's saying we have the scriptures, which is actually even more. Um, uh, so an eyewitness author of the scriptures, an apostle who spent time with Jesus, um, who, who all four gospel writers mention like multiple times, right? So everybody understands that Peter's there, that he's a part of this. He says, okay, listen, don't just take my word for it. We actually have the Holy Spirit inspired scripture. That both of those things, like it's not that Peter's word isn't good. It's that, it's that um, the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, on scripture is that much more important and it, the, his next line is knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit he's talking about god's word the holy spirit inspired god's word yeah yeah i think it's important to recognize that even some of the books we've, I already mentioned, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, those kind of come down to one guy saying, hey, you'll never guess what happened. Now, nobody else was there, but let's hang our whole, the whole thing on this. And the Bible is not that. It's important for people to understand that is not how the Bible works at all. There were plenty of other people who could have said, that didn't happen. 
I was there and it's multiple right. authors and it's not, it's the same problem we have with somebody saying, Hey, Jesus came in my bedroom last night and told me X, Y, Z. And now you better hold to that as if it's like written in the Bible. No, 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 that's, what, that's no good either. And what's really interesting, Steve, about that, when th there are people who said that didn't happen about the resurrection right? and, and they were lying and, um, and it, it, the Bible includes that. It's in Matthew 28, yeah. right? They, 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 you know, tell them, tell them that the, his disciples came and stole the body and, and, and we'll yeah. back you up on that. And, Fake and news. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> Fake news. It's fascinating because there were people who tried to say that didn't happen, but, but they were clearly lying. Like it, it, and it includes that in there. Hey, you yeah. can believe this group of people <laughs> or you can believe yeah. all of this. Yeah, the tomb was in a known place. Yeah, while yeah, they're saying up. this, so it was. Right. It, it really erodes your credibility when you say he's still in there and he's not <laughs> yeah. in there. Right. <laughs> right. You know, so okay. you mentioned already the Quran. So I've been reading the Quran over the last couple months, actually before the the incidents occurred in in Israel, and one of the things. Um, one of the many things I could say, number one, for anybody who believes this Chrislam idea uh, has never touched the Quran because there is no crossover whatsoever. Not only does it um, incorrectly tell uh, details of various Bible stories at random times, uh, it has never told a true story that happened to Moses or to Noah or to Ishmael or Isaac Um it, its style is completely opposed to scripture. There's no uh, through line of history the way that there is in the Bible. There's no equivalent to Genesis anywhere in the book. Um, there's no story of the beginning. It only talks about the end, about um, and only about uh, punishment for unbelievers and very nebulous descriptions of whatever paradise will be for the believers. Um, it also... Uh, prizes war over peace it even says if you're at war never ask for terms of peace um but one of the things and this comes from the confession as well um from paragraph five uh, one of the things that has struck me quite a bit in reading it so far has to do not only with obviously the content um being much deficient um as far as salvation and sanctification no equivalent of that in the quran anywhere uh, but even the style itself um, being a almost sort of a stream of consciousness, um, non-directive text um, puts me in mind of some some verbiage from um, from the confession. Paragraph five says, "We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures um, and the heavenliness of the matter, uh, the efficacy of the doctrine, which I would gladly come back to to talk about that if we have time." And the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, and the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes uh, of the only way of man's salvation, and other incomparable excellencies. That majesty of the style um, really came through for me. Just, it, just the fact of not only is, it, um, is the Bible telling uh, an incredible, amazing story of, of God's grace towards sinners, um, as shown through covenant over redemptive history, but it tells it in a way that makes it understandable. Uh, yeah. There's a, a term for that, perspicuity, um, which is just a super fun word anyway. But that's my it, favorite. That's my favorite word um, for like a, a doctrine about God's word. That's my favorite one because it's so hard to say. You have to, you have to like slow down and say it carefully, and it means it means really easy to understand <laughs> a difficult word that means something that's really easy to understand yeah <laughs> i love it i love it only a theologian would come up with that or like the word for like the phobia of long words and it's the <laughs> longest word in the english language uh, that stuff just cracks me up scaring uh, off those cowards <laughs> so perspicuity means that something is easy to understand and um you know in a very real sense the bible is easy, easy to understand um, it uses so many uh, literary devices, you know, whether it's narrative, uh, poetry, um, uh, the proverb itself is, is um, sort of a cousin to poetry. 
um, but that's its own genre as well. Um, so God, God, in His wisdom, inspired the His Word to be done in recognizable genres by particular people at a particular time. And even though it's you know at its youngest, a first century document, it's still something that's understandable uh, in its simplest, in, in a very simple way to people today in the twenty first century. Um, yeah. We can talk about the development of doctrine out of those texts, which is a more difficult task, but actually to read the Bible and understand what it says is not difficult. Even in, even in archaic language like the King James, you know, if you're a careful reader and you understand what words mean, maybe you use a dictionary from time to time, um, you will get the Bible. The Quran yep. is incredibly difficult to understand. <laughs> even yeah, in, think, even yeah. in, uh, a, a, a relatively good English translation. I think this kind of leads us into the next place I was, I was planning on on going and just talking about some of the characteristics of the Bible, and we hit one already. But let's talk a little bit because I think this would be helpful for people if we just talked a little bit about a few. We could we could go on quite a while on this, but let's at least just try to cover the what we mean by the authority, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency. And I don't care if you want to take one of those or however you want to uh, address that, each each of you, but I think it would be helpful for people to just get an explanation from from one of us on, on each of those. What do we mean when we say the authority of Scripture? Well, if we believe that it is God's Word, right? So we've established that, that it is God-breathed. God um, if we believe that it is God's word, so let me back up. If we believe in who God is, right, that he is who he says he is, and therefore this is his word, then we are compelled to, um, to, to see his word as an authority. So, so uh, we're compelled to obey. We're compelled to, um, to believe or to trust um, uh there's a there's a part of the uh let's see if i can find it real quick i'm not going to probably leave thinking of it um oh yeah it's article four of the confession says the authority of the holy scriptures obligates belief in them um this authority does not depend on the testimony of any person or church on god as the author alone who is truth itself so jesus said in john 14 i'm the way the truth and the life so jesus is the truth Jesus is God, right? So he's God the Son. If he is God, um, uh, and, and, and if that statement is true, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him, then we have to believe that, right? It, it, if he is who he says he is, then we have to believe that. And if that's true, that, that salvation only is through Jesus Christ, no one comes to the Father except through me, if that is true, then that... Um, sort of how do i say it? it it supersedes or or it shows us that all of the old testament and the old system of walking correctly with god through obeying the law which no one was able to do that that whole system all points at jesus and then things like for example the um the sacrificial system of the lamb taking away the sins in leviticus 16 that's about christ then that obligates that we trust in him does all of that make sense like if all of it points at jesus christ if he is the way the truth and the life then it, it obligates us believing um trusting in all that it says and the, and therefore doing um what the scriptures say Yeah. So, um, Lee, what do we mean about inerrancy when we use uh -huh. that that fancy word? Explain uh -huh. that for people. What do we mean by that when we talk about the Bible? Yeah, inerrancy is is a, especially a category that belongs to the Bible alone, meaning that it contains no error. Um, and so, in in anything that the that the Bible addresses, it it contains no errors. Um, and lots of fights have been have been made in the church about that word, um, even into the 20th century. That was uh, a big topic um, in in Christian in the Christian world. 
uh, there was a liberal faction that wanted to even into the 21st century even into the 21st century absolutely yeah yeah it was it, it was more than just uh rc sproul standing up on a table at a at a meeting in chicago for example it's it's gone on even since then he literally took his uh here i stand moment um but um yeah so so inerrancy um that means we can appeal to scripture um to tell the truth on everything that it speaks on um so that's why we can have scripture be the basis for all biblical doctrine that we would teach in the church, because God cannot lie. Um, he simply cannot. It would be a violation of his nature to lie. God is truth, right? Uh, Dana already mentioned that uh, just a, a minute ago. So if God is truth, and he is, and this word is his word, which he says it is, and he cannot lie, thus his word cannot lie. So that's why we can we can appeal to scripture uh, as the truth, and especially as the rule of of all saving knowledge. Um, so anything that contradicts what's said in the Bible is incorrect, because the Bible is infallible, uh, is inerrant. Uh, it has that it has that nature, um, and so we use it as the basis for for doctrinal development. Uh, if we hear a doctrine taught that that uh, uh, contradicts scripture. And that it can be clearly seen um, that doctrine is is errant and must be discarded. Um, that was part of the Arian controversy, for example. Um, even though extra language needed to be adopted in order to have the discussion with the Arian heretics, it was still made made plain. Scripture does not teach what Arius and his disciples were teaching. Thus, it was able to be condemned at an ecumenical council of the church. So even though the church doesn't use ecumenical councils anymore, um, that's still that very logic of we appeal to scripture as our highest authority. So all of the subsequent authorities beneath it, you know, must agree with it. And, and if they are in disagreement, they are not um, a subsequent authority. It's the norming norm uh, is another theological term for that. And we can only have that, have the Bible take that spot because it's inerrant. Um, that also kind of piggybacks onto sufficiency as well. Um, if you don't mind me going in that direction next and yeah, you can kick that over to Dana too. No, um, so because the word is inerrant, um, everything that it, re that, that it speaks on, um, uh, it tells the truth. Scripture is then sufficient, um, for, um, everything relating to life and godliness, right? That's the term that we often use talking about scripture being the infallible rule of all, of all faith and, and godliness, um, so this is something that will sometimes get, get misused by some very zealous Christians, and I appreciate their heart. Um, sometimes they'll say that sufficiency means that the Bible, everything that's worth knowing is taught by the Bible. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach us everything, right? The Bible's not going to teach you about um, gravity. Uh, it's not going to teach you the second law of thermodynamics. Right? There are aspects of knowledge that the Bible does not teach, Right, the Bible would have to be incredibly enormous in order to to give us all the knowledge that we need to live our life. However, before God, it it is sufficient for all those things. So we need to make sure that we treat the Bible, um, particularly in those in those ways that it is intended to be instructed to us, and not turn it into something that it's not meant to be. Um, I hope that is helpful and clear. Uh, because I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to push the Bible into that realm. Um, but we need to make sure that it's that we treat it as sufficient, and not um, say interpret the Bible through a cultural lens that would make the Bible say something that appeals to the culture, for example, uh, which some people will do. So in that sense, they don't believe the Bible is sufficient to speak to a cultural issue. They need the Bible to bend to fit the culture. Um, that is a violation of sufficiency. Um, yeah. They would merely that that's merely using the Bible as a uh, as an illustration or a, or a, even a crutch uh, to, to try to uh, to prop up um, any number of things that the culture would would want us. So, you know, one of those ways, uh, I think, is the twisting of uh, the whole judge not and you will not be judged sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, people don't trust the Bible to uh, to teach properly on what should and should not be done. And so when uh, a, a, an actual Christian uses scripture to condemn a sin that is clearly condemned in the Bible, 
then people will come back with, oh, judge not, you should love your neighbor, blah, 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 these kinds of things. You don't even believe that. You're just trying to play word games with the Bible. You don't believe in sufficiency. We actually do. And the Bible is sufficient enough to say that that this sin, wh whichever sin, take your pick, that this sin is sinful before God and should not be um, should not be undertaken, and you can be forgiven of by Christ. Yeah, that's an exercise in sufficiency. Hmm. Yeah, so I think that's. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say. So, so the confession says the whole counsel of God concerning um, everything essential for His own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated or by necessary inference contained in the Holy Scriptures. That speaks to sufficient language. Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. Well, yeah, I was just going to kind of piggyback on what Lee said as far as people wanting to play word games with the, in their attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. So you can imagine the, I don't know, 30-year-old living with mom and dad, playing Minecraft, no <laughs> jobs, smoking dope all day saying there's no marijuana there's no do a word search for marijuana mm -hmm. in the bible right. you can't find it so it doesn't address that the bible is sufficient to address that no that word does not appear there but it talks about being intoxicated or being a drunkard it talks about uh being yeah. a sluggard it talks about doing everything you do you do to the glory of God. It talks about God honoring labor. Like we could go mm -hmm. all day on that mm -hmm. guy. The Bible addresses all sorts of things. He seems to be having a problem with. It is right. sufficient yeah. for him. Yeah. And we we're not going to take the bait on the on the on the semantic. Well, it's not in there. The, the internet yeah. isn't. It, there's no internet mentioned in the Bible. So therefore, <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's not well, how it works. Another another great example too uh, to go from the necessary inference language, Dana, that you just mentioned. You know, yeah. the necessary inference aspect is hugely important on these kinds of topics. So, like you'll get people say, you know, does the Bible teach communism? Does it condemn communism? Either either one. We again do a word search for communism. You're not going to find it in the text of scripture. However, you will find so many passages that that take as a as a presupposition the right to private property, um, yeah. uh, people getting paid for their labor, um, yeah. and sometimes over generously, uh, yeah. you know, the, the laborers in the field who got the same amount of pay, regardless of how long they've been in the field. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's up to the guy who owned the field to pay what he'd like. Uh, he can be stingy if he wants. This owner was actually very generous, but it was up to him. And he says, can I not pay what what i believe is fair or you know something to that degree um so the, these are principles these are clear examples from from scripture that would actually contradict the idea of communism but if you're going to be strictly wooden about it and say well if it doesn't say communism then it then it must support it uh you know don't be a blockhead <laughs> i guess <would> be. <laughs> quit trying to be cute right? yeah yeah so, so let me let me throw a plug in here. All of this that we've talked about, particularly this this last section here, is is why it's so important. Um, we believe to preach through books of the Bible, um, right? As opposed to like, I'm I I don't think I could ever be a, like a topical preacher. You know, I I, I it's hard. But um, these guys that just sort of like say, okay, today we're going to preach about marriage and you know, five principles to how to be a better husband, blah, blah, you know, all, all this stuff is fine. And, and there's a time for some of that, right? We just finished a series on, on family um, uh, from the book of Proverbs, but, but our normal pattern is to go through books of the Bible because it's going to, the Bible, because of what we believe about the Bible, that it's authoritative, that it's inerrant, and that it's sufficient, it's going to address all of the things of life that we end up actually needing, right? So it, like you said, it may not address, should I buy a Honda or a Toyota, <laughs> right? It may, not, it may not address those kinds of things, but it addresses wisdom. It addresses- Well, you know, I will say all, all of all the, the, uh, all the disciples were in one accord. There so. you go. I knew, I knew he was going there. Read we can edit that. Last time on this we part. can edit that out, right? <laughs> I drive an accord, so uh, 
I'm, I'm being biblical. Well, um, sorry, I derailed you. Yeah, my, yeah, my I, sparkling I, I, humor. I, <laughs> I, th I think it's important to, um, if we believe that all scripture, so for Second uh, Timothy, um, uh, Paul, Second Timothy is such a fascinating book to me because it's Paul's final letter. My dog is running around because it's Paul's final letter. It is, it almost reads like his last will and testament. And every chapter, he talks about the importance of God's word and holding fast to God's word. He charges Timothy, right? And, and so not only is that, we, I mentioned chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, but right after that, just a couple of verses later in chapter 4, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and faithful witnesses, preach the word, right? So the, his final charge to Timothy is to preach the word. And, and so when we go through and we we talk about, um, you know, Genesis through Revelation, when we preach God's word, you don't have to go through it in that order. But when we preach through books of the Bible, um, I, I think it's actually helpful to kind of go New Testament, Old Testament, kind of bounce around to different genres we talked about. Um, to, to go through books of the Bible, we're going to address the topics that are the big needs of people's lives. You know, all the things of matters of salvation, faith, and life, as the, as the confession says. We're going to, you're going to hit on those things. Uh, sometimes the most important things week. in life. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 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 All right. Any, uh, before we ascend the library ladder, any final thoughts on, we sort of zoomed out here and just talked about, you know, big picture Bible issues. Any final thoughts on that? Or do we? I have a head for the have kind of a random thought, and, <laughs> and hear me out. Maybe it's it, maybe it's too radical. Maybe this should be for our Patreon only subscribers. <laughs> Behind the paywall, here we go. Um, <laughs> I, I think we're we're in a crisis of literacy in our in our culture right now. So I think the average American is going to be way better at picking apart a movie than <clears throat> than a piece of of literature, right? Um, and I think that harms biblical literacy as well. If people don't know how to read well, they're certainly not going to be able to read the Bible well. So I think a good part of, especially we do this with the library ladder, but I think there's another aspect to it too. If you can, if, if you can get yourself more acquainted with um, classics, classic literature, and I'm talking about like, you know, Greek plays or uh, uh, essays of Seneca or something from the older days, right? Old, old literature and be more acquainted with an ancient mindset, um, especially archaic language in any way to sharpen your reading skills, your reading comprehension skills, using non-inspired literature just to, to build up that those muscles. I think that will also help, um, help an appreciation and deeper understanding of, of scripture as well. Getting more acquainted with the ancient world, some of the historical context that lay behind the text of scripture, um, and, and also of the first century world as well, the Greco-Roman world. Um, those things can really help um, understanding the full import of, of scripture too. So um, those, those secondary items uh, really can, I, they've helped me a lot um, as I've continued to read, read the Bible and study the Bible over the years. Um, having some solid resources for understanding some of that context behind scripture uh, can really help too. Yeah. Yeah. So read, yeah. read books. Read. So, so which book, Lee? Yeah. What, give us an example of a, the sort of book people ought to read, Lee. Well, I'll tell you, because I, I think it's a ripping good time, but the histories by Herodotus would be a great example of some some ancient history uh just the goings on in the world at the time uh getting more a library ladder book no 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 this is a bonus <laughs> oh. this is a bonus um, free of charge <laughs> yeah take that for what it's worth i actually have a very contemporary book i'm going to recommend as we go up the library ladder uh oh very contemporary. is it a good good book it's a good good book i would say i, I it certainly was important to me when I was beginning to, uh, it's what it is. It's what it is. Um, 
So when I was beginning my, um, my Calvinistic journey, um, this book was helpful. It's a, it's now kind of a, a Calvinist classic desiring God. There you go. Desiring God. Anyway, yeah. it's gone through many cover revisions, whatever. Um, being able to uh, think about the religious affections, you know, we sometimes as, as a reformed folks, we get a little bit of a bad rap of being too heady and not enough heart um, for, for, you know, I have some exceptions with John Piper um, as you should probably with any contemporary theologian who's still living and still writing. But, um, but this book was very important for helping me, reform not only my theological understanding when it comes to solid doctrine, but really reform my affections, um, recovering the idea of joy in God and joy in many, many aspects. And this, this book's really, it really breaks down, um, finding joy in God, uh, in lots of different arenas. So it was super helpful to me. I would always recommend it to somebody, especially if you maybe sense that you're, uh, that your your heart is growing cold um you need a little you need the fire uh, stoked again um i've always found piper helpful uh in that arena anytime i've faced a chill uh for for various reasons so um uh recommend recommend desiring god by john piper nice i i have a book as well it's called expository sanctification by paul shirley um, this is a, a simple, quick little book, and it's actually a book on preaching that's not written for preachers. It is actually written for uh, churchgoers. Um, so uh, it's really connected with what we're saying, right? The, and the ordinary means of grace. Um, we are transformed by God's word, but we're also transformed by God's word when it is preached to us. And um, a lifetime of, of going to church and listening to sermons um, is is probably the most, well, it's at least one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit um, sanctifies us regularly. Um, uh, and so I, this is a good, it's a quick little read. Uh, you can probably read it in one or two sittings. Um, it's written by a pastor, but it is, and it's about preaching, but not for preachers. It's written for uh, churchgoers. Expository sanctification, Paul Shirley. Nice. I've got uh, Joseph and the Gospel of Many Colors by Vody Bauckham. Oh, great book! It's an easy read. It's like 150 pages. It's not. We we certainly at times uh, recommend books that are, you know, a a a chunk to read through. Big, you know, deep theological waters. This is this is very worthwhile. But it's a very it's an easy read. It's a read that you could, you know, you could have your 10, 12 year old read. It it addresses some some issues where if, if you are of my generation, you probably walked away from a Sunday school lesson on Joseph uh, with <laughs> some wrong thinking about what the point of that uh, those last chapters in Genesis were. I don't know that I was taught that, but that's what I learned. And so trying to address <laughs> some of those things and some of the bigger picture issues in the old testament and in particular with patriarchs it's a great great read easy read you should you should get it excellent Vody is one of those guys i think steve likes Vody. <laughs> yeah it might not yeah. be the last uh Vody book uh, that that we find at the top of the library ladder to be honest he's, with you so he's one of those guys if it were that's... something would be wrong yeah, he's one of those guys that's a contemporary with us. Like he's somewhere around. He's not Lee's age, but he's somewhere around Steve and I's age, maybe. Uh, he's and, in his fifties, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so are we. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and and at least in his seventies. And um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but but he so he's just been faithful for a lot of years and, and just pumped out a lot of content that I don't I don't mm -hmm. have anything that I've ever heard that I say I don't know that I agree with that. But but I, I'm waiting for his book on suffering. Yeah. After as his, soon as uh, you say that, he's gonna now yeah. be the kiss right. of death now. But right. yeah. it's not inerrant. We're not recommend. We're not recommending it because uh, the Joseph book is inerrant. But it is right. uh, worth your worth reading. So. Yeah. 
Excellent. Because yeah. some secondary Christian literature is so, so helpful. Uh, yes. So help. That's why we have the library ladder, right? So, yeah. you know, yeah. we need, sometimes it's, it's good to have, to hear the thoughts of some, some thoughtful theologians on particular topics or, or even commentary on particular biblical texts as well. Um, and it's, we grow and together it is, as a church. And it's okay um, to, to like disagree with these guys, mm-hmm. you know, on, on things. I mean, some things you can't yeah. really disagree with, but it's okay to say, yeah, I draw a different conclusion there. Um, the triage yeah. still remains. Search the scriptures and see if these things are so. Yeah. Solid. Okay. Well, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. See you next week. 